Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to the final hour of Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa and Tabiso Luhoko. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, a contentious and controversial Zambian bill fails to pass. South African public sector unions up in arms following the finance minister's announcement of deeper cuts of the public sector wage bill in the next three years. And in economics news, Kenya Power rolls out a countrywide initiative to tame the rising cases of electrical accidents. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Good morning, I'm Anne Musa. The United Nations has confirmed that at least 140 migrants bound for Europe have drowned following the sinking of the boat off the coast of Senegal. The vessel caught fire and capsized on Saturday shortly after leaving the south of the capital, Dakar. Reports say 60 more people were rescued. It's believed the migrants were attempting to reach the Spanish Canary Island. A picture is emerging of the movements of the Tunisian man suspected of killing three churchgoers in knife attacks in the southern French city of Nice on Thursday. The 21-year-old is in hospital in a critical condition after being shot by police. France's chief anti-terrorist prosecutor Jean-Francois Ricard says the suspect arrived in Nice by train. As for the assailant, he was taken to hospital to be operated on. He is very seriously wounded. He's still in a life-threatening condition. When he was arrested, he was carrying a document from the Italian Red Cross in the name of a Tunisian national born in 1999. Initial investigations have shown that this identity is that of the assailant. South Africa's health department says the number of coronavirus cases in the country has risen by 2,056, taking the cumulative cases to 771,770 in the past 24 hours. 53 people have died from COVID-19, putting the national death toll at 19,000. 164. Meanwhile, Eastern Cape Province authorities have warned of a possible return to a hard lockdown in the Nelson Mandela Bay, where a sharp rise of coronavirus infections has been reported. These residents of the area say the fear of contracting the virus has become a reality again. I'm very concerned that the numbers are going up, you know. After a uh, government uh, put us on level one, we all take this thing very easy. I'm very concerned and I'm scared. Um, but what can we do? We cannot force these people to wear masks. 
Primary and secondary schools in Tunisia are to close for 12 days as part of new measures against coronavirus. A huge surge of infections over the past month has seen cases increase by more than 1,000 per day. Close to 1,000 people have died since the virus hit Tunisia in March, and most of those deaths have been in the past two months alone. Earlier this week, Tunisia's health officials said that in parts of the country, hospitals treating COVID-19 patients had reached full capacity. Travel restrictions are coming into force across Europe to help stem the spread of the coronavirus. In France, where a second national lockdown came into force a few hours ago, people are not allowed to move more than a kilometer away from home without valid reason. In Spain, where Parliament approved a six-month extension of emergency, regional authorities have been given powers to limit freedom of movement. And in Portugal, people have been banned from leaving their municipality. That's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. I'm Figueiredo Lingwati with your sports update. We begin with cricket news. Cricket South Africa, CSA, has announced a busy international program of home international fixtures for the 2020-2021 season against England, Sri Lanka, Australia and Pakistan, all for crucial points in either the ICC Cricket World Cup Super League or the ICC World Test Championship, the WTC. The international season begins with a three-match KFC T20 International Series and three-match Betway one-day international series presented by Momentum against England in Cape Town and PAL. Sri Lanka follows with a two-match Betway Test Series in Centurion and Johannesburg. The fixtures will fall into the traditional Boxing Day and New Year's Test Match windows. On to athletics, Christian Coleman, the USA Sprint Champion, has been suspended for two years on allegations of doping violations while Algerian Olympic Champion Tafik Makloufi is being investigated for a possible doping offence. Our correspondent Geshem Nyati reports. Despite less athletics activity this year because of the COVID-19 pandemic, doping violations have since poked its ugly face again involving Christian Coleman and Tafik Makloufi. Following a disciplinary tribunal hearing, the Athletics Integrity Unit suspended Coleman for two years after he failed to avail himself for a drug test on three occasions. The 24-year-old American sprint champion who won gold medals in the 100 and 4 by 100 meter relay at the World Championships in Qatar last year appeared to have evaded drug testers at his residence within a period of 12 months. And finally, golf news. There was nothing to separate Mitch Waite and Johannes Viermann at the top of the leaderboard at the end of the first day of the inaugural Aphrodite Hill Cypress Open. Englishman Waite and American Viermann both made an eagle in their opening 64s at the stunning Aphrodite Hills resort to sit a single shot clear of their nearest challengers, Andy Sullivan, Semi Valimak, Joel Stolter, David Drysdale, and Jamie Donaldson. Oliver Farr and Gonzalo Fernando Castano, who were in the two groups with one hole of the first round, still to complete when play was suspended due to fading light, were part of the log jam on five under. They will finish up today in the morning. That's your Sport News this hour. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. 
Thanks to Figile for that sports update. It is 7.07 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Finally, a decision has been made by the Zambian parliament to either allow that country's constitution to be amended or not. The bill that had been tabled before parliament more than twice for second reading had been put off owing to premature closure of the house and also deaths of some MPs due to COVID-19. But critics claim the governing party did not have the two-thirds majority to pass the bill at the stage hence wanted to convince those from the opposition to vote in favour of the bill. And what has been the outcome from the vote? Arthur Sukobo compiled the following report. It has finally come to a close. Yes, the Constitution of Zambia, Amendment Bill Number 10 of 2019, has been rejected. The fall-off of the bill in Parliament when the House gathered for its second reading was caused by the absentia of members of Parliament of the opposition United Party for National Development that commands the second largest numbers of lawmakers in the House. Famously known as Bill 10, passed the first reading, committee stage, and Thursday was set for the second reading and the crucial vote to determine its fate as to whether the constitution of Zambia was going to be changed or not. The governing party, the Patriotic Front, which is the majority in the House, was in support of the bill, while the leading opposition, UPND, was opposed and instructions had been set straight by its leader, Hakainde Hichilema. We ask all well-meaning members of parliament to reject Bill 10 and to reject it outright. A number of stakeholders in the country had called on members of parliament to reject the bill, but again, Another good number was in support of the bill passing, thereby opening it up for changes to be made to the entire constitution. And a vote was cast on Thursday. But most members of parliament from the opposition stayed away from the house and the required two-thirds majority needed from the 156 members was not met as only 105 voted. Initially, 111 were supposed to vote yes for the bill to pass this stage. Speaker of the National Assembly, Dr. Patrick Matibini, announced the falling off. The results of the poll are as follows. Eyes 105, nose 0, abstention 0. Less than the required threshold, as less than two-thirds of all members of the Assembly have voted in the affirmative. Therefore, the deal falls away. Immediately, there was jubilation at opposition United Party for National Development, UPND President, Haka in the Hijilemba's house, and all MPs that stayed away from voting were seen parting in celebration of the final bill. A number of stakeholders have had their view on the falling off of the bill. Transparency International Zambia through Maurice Nyambe, has this. This bill did not represent uh, the aspirations of the Zambian people, and this bill was inimical to our interests as a democratic uh, country. And so we would like to uh, really express our thanks and gratitude uh, to all the opposing uh, members of parliament, and uh, we are very happy that uh, the bill has, has, has collapsed. Another son critic of the governing party, Chishimba Kambwili, leader of the National Democratic Congress, or NDC, is concerned that the constitution-making process failed 
just like the one that failed in 2011, describing it as a sad situation for Zambia. Today is another dark day for Zambia. We have again lost another opportunity to make a constitution that will stand the test of time. I say it's a dark day because Bilten had some very progressive clauses and it also had poisonous clauses. What we needed to do as political leaders, we were supposed to sit to agree to disagree. The Ipatriotic Front, the governing party, has not issued any formal statements. But in Parliament, cried foul that the opposition sabotaged the constitution, which they said was good for Zambians. Given Luinda is Justice Minister. Let it go in the valleys of this country. Let the people know and let the people understand who came to this house to represent them and who have used this house to represent themselves and to represent their myopic interests. And posterity shall read this history, and we shall be judged by how we handle matters of state. The falling off of this bill means Zambia will not be a Christian nation by law. Youths, disabled, women, and other vulnerable groups will not have their share in parliament on nomination basis, but they will have to fight for it on the ballot. Disputed 14 days of a presidential petition to be heard and determined will remain ambiguous again as opposed to the 30 working days that was proposed and Zambians may have to continue to have large constituencies as opposed to smaller and well-manageable ones and many clauses as proposed in the failed Bill 10. Reporting for Channel Africa in Lusaka, Zambia, I am Arthur Davis, Skopo. The United States economy grew at a 33% annualized rate in the third quarter the largest three-month gain since the government started keeping records in 1947. But with tens of millions of people still unemployed and the impact of the coronavirus palpable, with over 230,000 dead and infection rates spiraling, these new numbers don't paint a full picture of what is happening on the ground. Show and Bryce Peace reports on these developments and the state of a presidential race just days before the election. President Donald Trump will likely seize on these numbers as he lags his opponent heading into next Tuesday's election. The rebound from the dramatic plunge was expected as businesses started reopening and rehiring. With growth powered by a record 40.7% increase in consumer spending, while business and residential investments also rebounded. But with indications that a vaccine will be delayed until next year, and coronavirus cases hitting new daily records, including a daily death toll at above 1,000, even the markets have started to panic. Professor William M. Rogers III is a professor of public policy at Rutgers University. You know, one of the big problems that markets have, and particularly even households have, and homes have, or consumers have, is, uh, is uncertainty. When there's uncertainty, it's difficult to plan for the future. Uh, another, uh, the obvious uh, headwind is uh, we're now moving into our cooler months here in the United States, and uh, we've already started to see 30 states have their uh, positivity rates that are, that are moving in the wrong direction. And so I don't foresee uh, the state, state officials or the federal government shutting the economy down like we did in March and April, uh, but uh, we will see potentially greater, uh, some res more restrictions put on uh, commerce. 
While the courts continue to play an outsized role in the lead-up to this election, the Supreme Court ruling overnight that mail-in voting deadlines in key battleground states of Pennsylvania and North Carolina can be counted beyond Election Day in a setback for the Trump campaign as the president continues to cast dispersions on the process. You see, was I right about the ballots? It's messed up like you wouldn't believe. Now they say we'd like to get the ballots and maybe get them within a few days of the election, and we'll take 10 days to count them up. Oh, good. Let's let the whole world wait while you count your ballots. And you know what happens while they're counting them? They're dumping more ballots in there, okay? Where, they, where did they come from? The COVID pandemic casting a pall over this election, with more than 79,000 cases and over 1,000 deaths in the last 24 hours, driving early voting numbers to close on 80 million more than half those who voted in 2016. Joe Biden is the Democratic presidential nominee. This country can't afford four more years of a president who thinks he's only responsible for the well-being of the people who voted for him. We can't afford four more years of a president who, instead of fighting the virus, attacks doctors. I can't get over this guy. He attacked doctors claiming they're over-reporting COVID cases because they want to make more money. We can't afford four years of a president who'd rather spend his time desperately trying to strip people of their health care than even once bother to put forward a health care plan on his own. We can't afford former years of Donald Trump. I have a whole stadium behind. As the president continues to hold rallies with hundreds of supporters, many not wearing masks and no social distancing, with a closing message that undermines the science despite the staggering death toll. If you vote for Biden, it means no kids in school, no graduations, no weddings, no Thanksgiving, no Christmas, and no Fourth of July together. Other than that, you have a wonderful life. With both candidates holding dual rallies in the battleground state of Florida Thursday, where polling shows them neck and neck, I'm Sherman Bryce-Pees in New York. I am an African. I owe my being to the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the glades, the rivers, the deserts, the trees, the flowers, the seas, and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land. Masterclass Africa, where great minds connect. An explorative one-on-one talk show that seeks to tackle issues of leadership and consciousness on the African continent and around the world. Masterclass comes to you every Fridays, 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock Central African Time. Channel Africa, bringing you the African Perspective. It's 7.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Economic Freedom Fighters leader Julius Malema has challenged State Capture Commission Chair Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo to face him directly and not use the media. Malema was addressing members of his party outside the Randburg Magistrates Court where he and party MP Mbuyisen Ndlozi were appearing 
on assault charges. The pair are accused of assaulting Colonel Johannes Fenter at the funeral of Mama Winnie Madigizela Mandel in 2018 when he refused to allow Malema's vehicle into the cemetery. The case has been postponed until March next year with new witnesses expected to testify. Nomanizo Mandel reports. The EFF leader, Julius Malema, touched on a number of issues during the address, including questions around the race of his legal representation, wealth and land distribution, and the employment of foreign nationals by local businesses. On the Zondo matter, Malema said he was prepared to submit his bank statements anytime. I'm not scared of anything. Zondo don't come to me through newspapers. If we order. Face me straight, come to me straight, ask for my bank details from me. I'm not scared of Zondo. Zondo is not Jesus Christ. He's a human being like us. And he wants me, he will find me. Addressing the questions on why he was using white lawyers to represent him, Malema said his organization is not anti-white but is non-racial. He added that his choice of legal representation depends on the case. And our stand against white races is not against white people. We do not want racists. Everywhere we meet racists, we deal with them decisively. Lawrence Holders has been with me from long time ago. He doesn't start to represent me now. He has represented me before and he will represent me anytime I want him to represent me. Malema said this assault case was nothing but a distraction from focusing on the upcoming local government elections. He urged party members to stay focused on winning the elections. Because they brought us here to distract us, to defocus us. Fighter, do not be defocused by your enemy. Focus on taking over the municipalities. Focus on taking over power. Focus on removing Cyril Ramaphosa. Focus on removing the corrupt ANC. Focus on collapsing capitalism. Focus on winning socialism in our lifetime. Because the future is socialism. Earlier, Malema's lawyer advocate Lawrence Holders poked holes in Colonel Johannes Fenter's testimony that he was provoked. Advocate Holders took Fenter through the CCTV footage of the incident when Fenter refused to allow Malema's vehicle into the cemetery. Upper two, as we look at the screen now, there's one constable be holding you from, the, from, from your left-hand side. And that's the first one. The other one's in front of you. It's difficult to make, but it appears that the arm is even on your chest, the hand is on your chest, and the general's there as well. All three of them holding you. Is there on the picture, sir? No. Your worship, that is how it is on the screen. You've got no explanation for it. They are there for support. They're not supporting, they're not helping you to fight, they're holding you back. Colonel, have a look. The case has been postponed to March next year with new witnesses expected to testify. Nomalizo Mandela, Johannesburg.
Public sector unions are up in arms following South Africa's Finance Minister Tito Mboweni's announcement on Wednesday of deeper cuts of the public sector wage bill in the next three years. The unions were already upset about government's refusal to increase wages this year in line with the 2018 public sector wage agreement. Mboweni Mucha reports. Public sector unions were hoping that Finance Minister Tito Mboweni would announce a change of mind regarding his decision in February not to honour the last leg of the 2018 wage agreement, which would have seen salaries of civil servants increase by 7% this year. But it wasn't to be. Instead, Mboweni announced deeper cuts of the public sector wage bill over the next three years. He said government intends to reduce the salary cost by 60 billion rand next year, followed by a deeper cut of 90 billion rand in 2022, and a further reduction by 150 billion rand in 2023. Unions are angry. Nehawe has called the move an onslaught against its members and workers in general. Teachers' Union Sachu says it's a slap in the face for workers, and the Public Servants Association has called it a declaration of war. Robin Malika is the general manager of the Public Servants Association. The PSA is extremely disappointed in the manner in which the Minister for Treasury or Finance went on rampage in the Parliament yesterday to an extent that he went even into the mandate of the Minister for Public Service Administration and pronounced on issues of negotiations before even negotiations could start. We believe that his conduct is actually tantamount to onslaught on the public servants and attack on collective bargaining. Unions have taken the government to court over its refusal to increase wages as agreed in 2018. The matter will be heard in the Labour Appeals Court on the 2nd of December. Unions are confident of victory. Nehau Deputy President Mike Shingange. Given uh, the track record of the, 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 the labor laws in this country, including what we have done since we started the collective bargaining in this country, there's nothing unconstitutional about it. We're very confident that uh, the labor court is going to rule in favor of uh, the enforcement of the collective agreement that is there. Shingange says unions are also mobilizing their members to strike if needs be. I'm Mongeni Mucho in Johannesburg. The Global Medical Aid Agency Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, says it teams, it, its teams in South Sudan are preparing for an increase in diseases such as malaria and diarrhea in all of the country's flood-affected areas. The high risk of diseases is caused by displacement and crowding, poor hygiene conditions and a lack of functioning latrines. Months of severe flooding is affecting an estimated 800,000 people across a wide swathe of South Sudan with a total of 37 counties affected. More from Tilla Mohammed, MSF's head of mission in South Sudan. Well, uh, regarding the flooding situation, uh, severe flooding has affected uh, more than 800,000 people across South Sudan. So lots of houses have been damaged and leaving people uh, without adequate food, water, or shelter. Many areas have been flooded since July, and it still continues. River uh, levels are continuing to rise, worsening the crisis further. Now talk us through MSF's key focus areas and response and how teams are preparing for the increase in diseases as a result of the flooding situation not getting um, any better. 
Uh, you know that uh, this year's uh, floods are happening against the backdrop of multiple emergencies, including uh, COVID-19, uh, increased violence, growing economic uh, crisis in the country, and high levels of food insecurity. So, uh, now we are preparing for an increase in disease in all flood-affected areas, such as diarrheal disease, malaria, given the high risk caused by the displacement and crowding. MSF is responding in greater Tibor area and we are working currently especially in Jungle, Upper Nile State, Unity State. These needs, uh, the needs uh, for the medical care are increasing with a sharp rise in malaria cases and fear of outbreak, which should be our, uh, our main focus on in the coming months. What is MSF appealing for? Is there any appeal to the global community in terms of how international actors can better help the country deal with this challenge? Well, yes, there is definitely a need for more and more support and response to this uh, flooding. As I told you, that uh, this is not only a thing in South Sudan which needs response. And there are many other things that are going, but immediately related to the flood, I think... Uh, there is much more attention needed in terms of responding. Yes, we are doing uh, our best. We are continuing to do all this aerial assessment, ground assessment with our team. And it's also very difficult to reach to certain areas. So yes, there is a definitely a need of the uh, global community humanitarian actor to respond and uh, make sure that there is enough funding that's uh, Tila Mohammed, head of mission for Doctors Without Borders in South Africa, in South Sudan, on the line from the capital Juva, speaking to Jane Ravutata. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment. To our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLE to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were periods and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on internet and satellite from an African perspective. Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French and English, giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalunian Zovo and you are listening to Channel Africa. We are Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. 
Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Good morning, I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, the United Nations has confirmed that at least 140 migrants bound for Europe have drowned following the sinking of their boat off the coast of Senegal. A picture is emerging of the movements of the Tunisian man suspected of killing three churchgoers in knife attacks in the southern French city of Nice. And primary and secondary schools in Tunisia are to close for 12 days as part of new measures against coronavirus. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 7.32 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. The COVID-19 pandemic is accelerating the move to digital as more businesses make the transition to service automation, especially in the communication field, to increase customer satisfaction. According to George Fraser, Vice President and Customer Business Executive for Africa, at a software and services provider company Amdocs, if all companies were to focus on automating their businesses, Africa could improve engagement, build customer loyalty and promote the adoption of unassisted channels. Fraser spoke to Samora Mangesi on the from Dubai to further discuss this. We've been supporting the digitization of customers, communication service providers in Africa for nearly 20 years now. And a lot of it now is about meeting the expectations that these customers have that have been driven by the likes of Apple or Facebook or Uber. For those, it's about having an experience that's very personal, that's very intuitive, and that gives immediate uh, satisfaction in many ways so if you if you buy something you, you get something immediately so we believe that if you can leverage the right technology leveraging artificial intelligence and data to drive a really personalized customer service that's critical um, and you know I would get a very different offer from a telecoms provider than you would in my case I travel extensively I've got two kids so it would make sense for, for them to offer me international voice and data or an opportunity to have a single offer for myself and my kids. And that might be very different from what you would get. And we see that customers everywhere across Africa are demanding that one click away from buying goods or services. And it just doesn't need to be offerings from that provider themselves. Bundling those services with third parties like a Netflix or an Amazon are increasingly powerful. Um, and if I think in my own personal case, again, a great example in terms of leveraging that technology and meeting my, beating my expectations was I wanted to go and sign up for a, an iPhone 12 at the weekend. My partner didn't like the idea of me queuing in a store and going through what is often a, a kind of cumbersome process for going and buying a phone and signing again to an extended mobile contract. Going with a digital-first approach, I instead just went online, I ordered the product, and it took me five minutes. So that's really beat the expectations of my partner, which is often 
more important than my own. What should communication service providers looking to enable a simple intelligence-driven and streamlined experience do in order to meet those needs? For me, it's really about reimagining that customer experience. You know, it begins, many are, are big, they'll, they'll start with baby sets sometimes. So they might start with their current offerings and looking at how they might streamline those, reducing complexity, uh, providing simple bundles of their own offerings, maybe broadband and mobile together, or broadband and mobile and TV. But most of all, it's about making it as easy as possible for customers to interact with them, primarily remotely now, particularly with COVID-19, because people aren't so keen on going into a store. And much of that is about driving a digital-first strategy, where your prime engagement route is through mobile or the web. And what they're doing is they're embarking, embarking on big transformation programs leveraging cloud technologies and being digital first. So, and their process is, it's all about simplifying the customer experience. It's about reducing the complexity of what is often very complex behind the scenes and making it as simple as possible to engage with the customer. But at the heart of it, it's all of this is about really understanding your customer and about giving them what they're looking for now. And they need to change it. How can partnerships between organizations improve customer experience? Can you also give us some examples of partnerships maybe that are currently working or that you think could work? Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think that's a really interesting aspect around recent developments in the digital world. Increasingly, digital players are now working together to deliver an even greater experience than they could with their own standalone piece of software or offering. So some examples that I could think of would be, let's think of Waze. So that's Google's GPS product. When I use Waze now, it's already integrated into Spotify or Apple Music. In my case, it's Spotify. So I might be using the app to get from A to B, but I can manage my music without having to go to Spotify itself because it's fully integrated into Waze. Another example, the reverse way around is when I use Shazam, which comes with my iPhone for, for song recognition, uh, once I've uh, recognized that song, I can seamlessly connect to Spotify to play that very track. So those kind of partnerships, are, I think, are becoming increasingly important in the marketplace so that you can bundle services seamlessly. All right. And uh, what are the benefits of an organization digitally transforming or automating services for the business and the customer? Yeah, for me, going digital, it's a win-win for both. Um, For the customer, it's really about having something simple, that's intuitive, it's personal, uh, and it's immediate. Um, But it doesn't just have to be online, yeah? In Indonesia, for example, we're working with Excel, a mobile operator there, and we've provided tools to allow their in-store agents to provide something that's really personal when you're in-store. So for the customer, a load of benefits. And then for the operators, it's really about simplifying their back-end systems, increasing um, customer satisfaction um, because people are able to engage online and much more rapidly. And fundamentally, that will help reduce their costs through leveraging intelligent technology. Uh, What does automation mean for human capital and what skills will be required to ensure smooth transitioning? 
Yeah, I was reading an interesting article from McKinsey about this the other day, and a lot of execs are pondering about this. But for me, it's about us as humans delivering what technology can't. Computers can't program themselves. They don't understand social interaction. So where that personal touch is required, humans just can't be replaced. Um, and if we do that, we'll be moving into higher value roles, leveraging those people. And I think that's great for us as humanity. But then the final bit for me is um, technology can't really deliver that personal touch when you're looking at service industries. Um, so technologies just really can't compete in that area. So I think there'll be a shift towards people being much more technically oriented. And I think you'll see, as you've seen many economies, people are moving towards a service industry uh, and then leveraging the technology to make them far, far more efficient. That was George Fraser, Vice President and Customer Business Executive for Africa at a software and services provider company, Amdocs, speaking to Samora Mangis. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. It's 7.40 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. As the month of October is Eye Care Awareness Month, a group of visually impaired people with their white canes has tracked along the busy R75 in South Africa's coastal city of Port Elizabeth to raise awareness for White Cane Safety Day. This is part of the national campaign to raise awareness and promote eye care across the country. Veronica Ferri caught up with the group and filed this report. The visually impaired people were each escorted by another person during the walk of about two kilometers. They used their white canes to indicate they are blind. Motorists had to slow down for a while to take note. Angelina Kope from the Bureau for the Prevention of Blindness says people should appreciate their sight and look after their eyes. Raise awareness on the importance of taking care of our eyes. And then on the White Cane Safety Day, we are saying to the community, here is a tool which is a symbol of blindness, which is the white cane, and which is also a tool of independence. So we want the community to understand, if you see someone walking around with a white cane, this is a blind person, but he's independent. If you are driving, give way. Don't try to help. The chairperson of the National Council for the Blind in the Eastern Cape, Koldisa Yekani, says there's not enough medical assistance in the country for disadvantaged people and especially those in the rural areas. The National Council for the Blind has entered into a partnership with some government departments such as health and others so that we may find funding that will enable this organization to roll out treatment to those rural areas. Nomhle Dayele is blind. She says it is not an easy life, relying on others for help. You make a deal with someone to help you, but then 
that person doesn't come. So, and you get disappointed. The 31-year-old Lundi Potelwa lost his sight as a child when he was struck down with meningitis. His mother taught him to be independent. I want to be a chef now because I'm good at cooking. I know that if I'm a chef, I can be an employer. Then the, un- the unemployment rate will, will go down because I will open my restaurant then employ the, the unemployment people. The theme for this year is hope in vision. The hope is that the rights of blind and partially sighted persons to travel independently and safely in a universally accessible environment is recognised. Veronica Furi in Port Elizabeth. A 2016 report by South Africa's Council for Scientific and Industrial Research estimated there were up to 90,000 waste pickers in South Africa who play a substantial role in the country's waste management industry. As some of the most vulnerable communities in the country, waste pickers were severely impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. United Nations Industrial Development Organization joined hands with the government of Japan in a project to support waste pickers in South Africa. More from the head of the UNIDO office in South Africa, Khaled El Mehwad. The, the initiatives come under the, the UN flash appeal to address uh, the, the national response to COVID-19. And um, UNIDO is being quite active in this regard. And um, we, uh, we have addressed uh, many, many aspects. Uh, the, the socio-economic impact. In addition to that, we addressed uh, under the environment pillar the support provided to the waste pickers. So, um, uh, the, in, in close cooperation with, uh, uh, with the government of Japan and coordination with its uh, university, CSIR, the Department of Environment, Forestry and Fisheries, uh, UNIDO um, assisted in providing uh, PPE to waste pickers at four locations in Free State, Western Cape, KZN, and uh, Gauteng uh, to South African Waste Pickers Association. Uh, this, of course, to help them to be more equipped and more capable to work in, in a more favorable environment. They are the, the frontliners. Uh, in this society, they're protecting themselves to work and they're protecting the rest of the society. So this was one uh, initiative. The second initiative was the provision of the handover of a four-ton uh, truck handed over to transport uh, collected materials, expand our markets and assist in food parcel distribution. And also this would help to reduce accidents and incidents in the case of elderly women who otherwise have to pull trolleys for many kilometers. Let's talk about the partnership here um, with UNIDO in partnership with the University of the Witwatersrand, the CSIR and the government of Japan. How did this um, come about and how did you uh, manage to acquire funding from the government of Japan on this issue? Well, UNIDO is, is an implementing agency. It means that we are not uh, providing funds. However, we address the development needs of the government of, of the country we are, we are stationed at. And also, uh, we design and implement projects uh, which respond to this, and we do a, a transparent consultative project uh, process. We uh, we work with the government, the civil society, the private sector, and then we come up with this. And we also work closely 
to to identify uh, sources of funding. So there is a fund mobilization process. We uh, work all together. So we work with the stakeholders, with the host country, the beneficiary, to come up with with a, with a complete package, uh, including you know the design, the implementation, and the funding. Now, besides this project, how else does you need to support um, the South African government and its citizens um, to mitigate this uh, great pandemic? Uh, well, we uh, we have different uh, access of, of of activities. Uh, we are we are addressing, of course, gender, um, youth employment, and uh, through, for instance, an example to give you under the pillar of climate change and gender equality, uh, we have uh, different uh, activities like uh, the industrial uh, energy efficiency, low carbon transport project, economic empowerment of women in green industries. Uh, innovation uh, program uh, for uh, accelerator for entrepreneurs and startups, uh, transition from um, uh, conventional plastics to more sustainable environment. So this is in circular economy and uh, also uh, biogas market developments and strengthening the quality of essential and vegetable oils exports for South Africa. So these are a few examples of the assistance provided and uh, under, uh, we link all of this to the socio-economic impact uh, on South Africa from COVID-19 and we adjust our interventions uh, to be more oriented COVID-19 and one, one most important thing is to, um, to address SMEs uh, uh, in, within COVID-19 and post-COVID-19 about how to, um, uh, to sustain jobs and to create new, new jobs and to also use the tools like uh, digital economy, uh, the fourth industrial revolution, to have a better response in this regard. And just uh, finally, um, Khalid, a second wave of the pandemic has emerged in many countries. And of course, South Africa is also at risk. Uh, what are your views and observations on this? Well, uh, we have seen what is happening in Europe. And uh, this gives us lessons and indication uh, that uh, there was a period, uh, you know, the, I think all countries, South Africa and Europe and, and all countries, have adopted strict measures at the beginning of the pandemic. And then, you know, uh, after we get some positive uh, signs and signals, people tend to be uh, more relaxed and less compliant. And uh, if we see what happened in Europe, I think uh, this is cases in, in the case in many countries. So I think the lesson for South Africa is to continue uh, keeping, uh, you know, all the, the protocols uh, uh, by, uh, you know, advised by the government, you know, like social distancing, uh, also uh, lower footprint to uh, to working places, and uh, and you know the, the hygiene uh, practices, good hygiene practices. And then not to, you know, to follow a trend of, of relaxation or lassitude. Uh, we should be ready. We should continue. We, maybe the, the, the media campaign can be active in, in you know, sending like a refreshment uh, messages or reminders to people about what is going uh, elsewhere. And then now in South Africa, we should, we should keep, you know, the, the success of the results so far achieved. 
That's Khaled El Mekhwad, head of the UNIDO office in South Africa, on the line speaking to Zikona Miso. It's 7.50 Central African time and our economics update up next with Tabiso Lohoko. Thanks, Lulu, and good morning. Kenya Power has rolled out a countrywide initiative to tame the rising cases of electrical accidents. The firm has partnered with national government administration officers to enhance public awareness on the danger of unsafe use or accidental contact with electricity. Kenya Power Managing Director Bernard Nguki says through the partnership with the company, aims to educate the public on how to prevent electrical accidents and the channels for reporting accidents and unsafe situations in a timely manner. Former South African Revenue Services boss Tom Moyane is this morning expected to cross-examine Public Enterprises Minister Pranthun Gordon at the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture in Johannesburg. The Commission's chairperson, Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zond, ruled this week that Moyane may cross-examine Gordon subject to certain conditions. His questions relate to Gordon's allegations that... The laying of criminal charges against him was motivated by Moyane's malicious pursuit of state capture objectives. Moyane's lawyers had pleaded for an unconditional cross-examination, claiming that Godan's allegation was unsubstantiated. Amina Akram reports. Former SARS boss Tom Moyane and Public Enterprise Minister Pravin Godan will finally face off each other at state capture. Analysts say the cross-examine is likely to be intense for everyone, particularly the allegations and what the cross-examine is going to focus on. Godan implicated Tom Moyani earlier in the commission in 2018. He alleged that Moyane was incompetent in how he ran SARS. In his testimony, Godan also accused Moyani of acting to serve the state capture agenda. Moyani instituted criminal charges against Godan. Amina Akram, SBC News, Johannesburg. Meanwhile, the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture in Johannesburg will this morning continue to hear evidence related to South African arms manufacturer Denau, the company's former land systems, a former chief operations officer and a current general manager, Rhiannon Diobis, is expected to give evidence this morning. This week, former top executives at Denau's land systems testified on how they were forced to sign deals that benefited the Gupta family through their VR laser contracts. Former Land Systems Procurement Executive Celia Mahlalela said she was forced out of the company after questioning the deal. She alleged that VR laser was favoured against other competitors despite having a higher price for their contract. DVS Land and Commercial Executive Karine Haldanes also explained how they resisted instructions from their executives regarding irregular procurement and contracts. 
member of the British House of Lords, Peter Hayne, has uh, again called on the British government to, to impose the sanctions on the Gupta brothers over what he calls the looting of taxpayers' funds in South Africa. Hayne wants his government to take action on the basis that the Guptas transferred funds through international banks, many of which are headquartered in London, including the HSBC. I'm planning to raise in a few hours' time sanctions against the Gupta brothers. I've called for this before. They've looted from South African taxpayers about 7 billion rand. That's massive money, especially with the way the economy has been hit and the, the treasury is almost, national treasury is almost bankrupt because of COVID. It's a massive amount of money that's gone through the international banks yeah. uh, and that they're spending in India and Dubai, and that money needs to be recovered and they need to have sanctions put on them. So that's what I will be calling for from the British government. I've called for that before and nothing has been done, so I'm repeating it. A delegation from the Ministry of Mines and Energy have held a stakeholder dialogue on the operations of MNG Gold Liberia. The dialogue was based on the underground mining permit the government of Liberia, through the Ministry of Mines and Energy and its Environmental Protection Agency, granted the management of MNG Gold Liberia in July this year. The dialogue gathered together citizens, country authorities, officials of the MNG Gold, and a delegation from the Ministry of Mines Energy. The US dollar is trading at 384.47 Nigerian Nara. 11.25 Botswana Pula, 107.90 Kenyan Shilling and 20.41 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, we'll start in Brazil. One US dollar there costs 5 rule 75 Russia. 79 rubles 4, India 74 rupees 15 in China a dollar is trading at 61.71 and in South Africa it will cost you 16 rand 37. The US dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and 85 cents to euro. A look at commodities markets now. Gold is trading at $1,877 and platinum at $855 per ounce while Brent Crude oil is at $37.90 a barrel. Africa, your favorite channel. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Well, that's a wrap of Africa Rise and Shine this week. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Luanda Malme, technical producer Spisuma Shekho, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za, WhatsApp on plus 277-6300327, or tweet us at Channel Africa 1. And taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Melanin, by Salty Soul featuring Pato Ranking. Goodbye and be safe. <laughs>